Welcome to the Carbon and Cows podcast, brought to you by Washington State University and University of Idaho. This is Nina Gibson. In this podcast series, I dive into topics related to carbon markets and where dairy and livestock producers in the Pacific Northwest can play a role. Each episode, I interview an expert working at the forefront of this rapidly evolving landscape. From engineers to economists, we go into some of the nuances of existing and emerging regulated and voluntary carbon programs and different aspects of project development that may impact their long-term economic success. Let's get started. In this week's episode, I interview Peter Weisberg. Peter brings more than 15 years of experience in developing and financing greenhouse gas reduction projects and monetizing their environmental attributes. With a focus on generating carbon credits for voluntary carbon markets, compliance cap-and-trade systems, and transportation-focused clean fuel standards, Peter writes greenhouse gas quantification methodologies and monitoring plans structures the design and financing of projects, and develops offtake structures for a wide variety of agriculture, removal, and supply chain projects. Peter has been working in carbon markets since 2007, spending more than a decade at the Climate Trust, an early nonprofit buyer of carbon credits that set standards for credit environmental integrity, where he launched Climate Trust Capital, a carbon investment fund, and Native Energy, where he developed projects in Fortune 500 company supply chains. In this week's episode with Peter Weisberg, we take a deeper dive into some of the details behind clean fuel and -and cap-and-trade programs in Washington, Oregon, and California and how dairy digesters can earn environmental credits through these programs as well as crediting for dairy digester renewable natural gas projects at the federal level. Peter breaks down their current trends and how supply and demand within these programs can influence project development. All right, welcome to the podcast, Peter. Thanks for joining us today. Yeah, thanks for having me. I'm excited to be here. Great. Well, we're excited to have you. To start us out, can you describe your role at Three Degrees and how your company is adapting to these emerging opportunities that we're seeing right now in regulated renewable energy and carbon markets? Yeah, so um, Three Degrees, we call ourselves a carbon developer, and that means that we partner with projects to do all the work associated with making environmental credits so that's like registering them with systems doing the monitoring doing the uh, overseeing the verification we aren't verifiers ourselves but we hire the verifiers and we uh, work through their questions things like that and issuing credits on across all environmental markets um and then doing the work to sell credits um on top of that we often layer in financing or maybe risk mitigation to projects uh to help them build new projects using revenues from these environmental markets. So it's this combination of what we call carbon development, creating and selling the credits, and then 
um, financing and building projects. And my role, I'm the director of development uh, for our carbon and transportation teams. And my role is to go out and find new opportunities and structure agreements with them and then get them approved internally. Um, and um, we have a, a separate team, the project operations team, that does all of that, the, the real work of creating and selling the credits um, across different markets. And we are active. I was excited to be on carbon and cows dollar sign. I'd say we're active in anything that's carbon and cows dollar sign for sure. So um, we've been working in cap and trade systems since their inception. Um, we've done a lot of work in California's cap and trade system because um, that's where the bulk of the opportunity has been historically. Um, we're doing a lot of work now in, we call them clean fuel standards. So that's um, California's low carbon fuel standard, Oregon's clean fuel program, now Washington's clean fuel standard, Canada's um, CFR. Um, if there's a transportation market that's carbon intensity based, we're, we're working there also. Um, we also do a lot of work in the voluntary market. Um, we're one of the largest sellers of voluntary credits to companies throughout the U.S. and Increasingly within agriculture, we're working with those companies, not just on carbon credits, but also on projects that reduce their supply chain emissions. Um, and uh, we also do a lot of work with renewable natural gas. Um, we have a business selling renewable natural gas to companies that want to mitigate their emissions associated with using fossil gas. And so we work with utilities and corporate customers that are looking to reduce um, natural gas emissions. So. If there's something involving cows and environmental markets, we're there and we're involved. It's been an area of focus for us for um, over 15 years. Okay, great. Well, with the focus of our discussion, say, on opportunities in these carbon markets for dairy and livestock industry in the Pacific Northwest, can you explain to our listeners exactly what on-farm technology exists that enables them to be able to participate in these regulatory cap and trade and clean fuel programs yeah sure so um you know the core environmental credit that's being um recognized in cap and trade systems and clean fuel standards in the dairy space is avoiding methane emissions from the installation of an anaerobic digester um and so there's really one core protocol, the livestock protocol. It was originally long ago, a voluntary protocol that got adapted into California's cap and trade system and now has been basically adapted into clean fuel standards and cap and trade systems. Anything that's quantifying avoided and crediting avoided methane emissions. That's really the sort of core engine that's saying what qualifies and how do you quantify the emission reductions? And that protocol is stipulates that it's only for anaerobic digestion. And so um, so that's where we've seen regulated markets present a creditable opportunity to um, dairy projects. Um, you know, like I said, we do a lot of work in the voluntary market. Um, we are excited to be working with Biofiltro. We adapted a protocol that can be used in voluntary markets there to credit. So that's an alternative system to mitigating methane from manure. It's these big fields of worms that are processing manure. We're doing work with a lot of other, we call them advanced manure management systems that are sort of on par with digesters for their ability to keep solids out of lagoons, which is really what we're after, um, and avoid methane. 
those aren't currently eligible um, under the livestock protocol that again is this key engine for all of the regulatory markets that we're going to talk about and so those aren't aren't opportunities right now we're working on changing that we've been advocating with the air resource board um and they, they had a process i think it's two years ago now um the offset protocol task force that was looking at new protocols and we were recommending changes to the livestock protocol that would let you credit avoided methane emissions from things that aren't just anaerobic digestion. It was one of the four opportunities that they identified um, that's, that are promising and that they're interested in exploring, but it wasn't something that they've moved forward with or that's eligible now. Um, I know you want to focus on regulated markets. The one other thing is we've just seen a lot of excitement in the voluntary market that um, in particular consumer packaged good companies and their investors are demanding that companies take action in their supply chains. And so there is a very real demand for emission reductions for, from all companies that use dairy. Um, and um, we see prices that are potentially on par with what we're seeing in regulated markets and, and a willingness for companies to be flexible in terms of which protocols they use. It's not just limited to this livestock protocol, anaerobic digesters, it's much broader. And so we think there's a lot of opportunity there. We're doing a lot of work in uh, enteric emissions, feed additives to reduce uh, methane or fertilizer management and nitrogen management to reduce nitrous oxide and these other ways of um, mitigating methane from lagoons. Um, and I think it's all really interesting, really promising in the future. Um, but what's here now and what we've seen a big build out is anaerobic digestion based on regulated markets. Uh, so I'm happy to focus there um, also. Okay, great. My takeaway from that is there are other protocols or methods of reducing greenhouse gases on dairy farms that exist, but in order to participate in the regulated clean fuel standard programs and cap and trade programs, you have to follow the livestock offset protocols which is tied to the use of a biogas control system or anaerobic digester, essentially. And just to sort of lay the framework for our discussion today so all of our listeners know exactly what we're talking about here, an anaerobic digester allows a dairy to capture the biogas coming off of at least part of its manure management system. Most of biogas is made up of methane, there are other gases in, gases in there like carbon dioxide and hydrogen sulfide. Those have to be taken out in the biogas upgrading process to what's called renewable natural gas or RNG. So you're left with just mostly methane there. And that RNG has the same chemical makeup as fracked natural gas where it can then be injected onto a natural gas pipeline. And so that's one way these dairy digesters can earn credits under state clean fuel standard programs. There is a federal renewable fuel standard program, which we'll go into later, where dairies can also earn credits for generating renewable natural gas. But back to state clean fuel programs. The other pathway dairies can earn credits under these is through doing a biogas to electricity project where that electricity is used for electrical vehicle charging stations. And then separate from these clean fuel programs are cap and trade programs. And so dairies can generate what are called carbon offset credits 
uh, based off of the emissions they are avoiding from entering the atmosphere from the installation of an anaerobic digester or biogas control system on their manure management system. And so the most straightforward offset project scenario would just be capturing the biogas in the digester and then flaring it off as carbon dioxide. Offset projects can definitely get more complicated than that, but just that's sort of the general framework for what an offset project is. Yeah, I think the key there is um, the type of market that you qualify for as an anaerobic digester depends on how you use your biogas. And um, if you want to participate in the, in the clean fuel standard, your the energy you produce from the digester needs to be matched with uh, fuel consumption in a vehicle. So for that could mean you're making renewable natural gas um, and matching it with compressed natural gas that's consumed in trucks and vehicles, um, or it could mean that you're making electricity and it's matched with electric vehicles. Uh, but you have to have that end use that's related to transportation to make clean fuel standard credits. Um, offset projects, you just have to show that the biogas is combusted. So you could flare it, you can put it in an engine, you could put it in a vehicle, all those things. As long as the gas is combusted, you're avoiding that methane emission. Um, and so it's a much more flexible and broad standard. And then the other market that we're going to touch on is the renewable fuel standard. Um, that's similar. You have to show that it goes to transportation, but it's only for renewable natural gas um, right now. And so, um, so again, the how you use the gas is really what determines which markets you're eligible for. Okay, great. So next, I hope to dive a little more specifically into the state programs and break down, you know, what programs belong to each state, how they interact with each other, what things are the same, and what are different. I guess we can go ahead and start with Washington, so I'll let you take it away. Yeah, Washington is maybe the hardest, you know, two new programs um, that are up and becoming running today, which is super exciting. A new cap and trade system, they call it a cap and invest system. Um, from an offset perspective, um, it uses the livestock protocol, just like we talked about. Um, the biggest differences that we've seen from California's cap and trade system so far that are exciting are... Um, Prices have been higher. It's a very steep emission reduction requirement in Washington. It's an, an ambitious program. Um, and because of that, we've seen high prices for allowances, which are related to offsets. We haven't seen an offset price yet um, there. And the other thing is um, all the offset credits in Washington, outside of projects on tribal lands, have to have direct environmental benefits to Washington, which I think we could simplify to mean be either be in Washington or be close enough to Washington to have a case that they're making an environmental benefit to Washington. And um, that is also an exciting thing because by constraining supply, if you are a Washington project, it just means we're likely to see higher offset prices there as well. And so um, Washington also has a clean fuel standard. Um, very similar. It's, it's relatively the same story. Um, the rules and quantification all look very similar to the programs that we have in um, Oregon and California. You know, some nuances that probably matter that we can get into, but um, overall, it's a relatively similar program. 
we've just started seeing pricing there again. These markets are brand new. The price there has been higher than California, but lower than Oregon. Um, and so definitely a viable clean fuel standard and a new interesting option. Um, that doesn't have the same in Washington requirement. Um, and so there's there's some more flexibility there. Gotcha. So in order to participate in Washington's clean fuel program, projects generating renewable fuels don't have to be within state bounds. That's right. And then they will be taking fuels from out of state. Okay. Yeah. All of these markets have different, on the clean fuel standard, they have different, they call them um, deliverability, like how you make the case that the fuel the digester produced ends up in a vehicle. Um, and Oregon and Washington are actually more flexible than California, um, where for a, this is for electricity now, projects anywhere in the WEC, like the Western United States, um, their electricity can be matched with um, electric vehicle use. In California, you actually have to wheel power into the CAISO, the balancing authority that covers California. Um, and so um, it's possible to have out-of-state projects. We have projects in Utah and Idaho where we wheel power into California. Um, it's harder for sure. Um, and so um, Washington's pretty flexible on the clean fuel standard side, I would say. Uh, but but uniquely unflexible on offsets. Um, the offsets must be in the state, um, which creates a lot of opportunity for Washington-based producers, for sure. Okay, great. Thanks for that breakdown there of Washington's programs. Moving on to California. California has had a cap-and-trade program since 2013 and then a low-carbon fuel standard program. So if you could explain how those work and what you see happening there, that would be great. Yeah, sure. So, you know, very similar to Washington, just with a lot of history. And, um, you know, the, the California has really been the engine that's crafted a lot of these policies, written a lot of the rules around how they work, all of those things. Um, but similarly, um, California's offset system, it does now have a requirement um, projects that have direct environmental benefits to California traded a premium. Um, that's a new thing that started, um, I think in 2021. Um, you can have out of state offset projects also, they're just less valuable um, there. And um, yeah, and then California's LCFS is by far the biggest transportation market. Um, you know, California is very, very large. And so it's been driving the development of dairy digestion, I would say. And it's really been around renewable natural gas that's then consumed in CNG vehicles in California um, as a clean fuel standard. But it also allows electricity to, to be matched with electric vehicles there. Okay, great. And we'll come back to some of those details a little later. Uh, moving on to Oregon's program. Oregon just has a clean fuel standard program that has existed since 2016. It functions pretty similar to California and Washington's, as I understand, but has been in place for quite a bit longer than Washington's. You were also saying that Oregon's uh, low-carbon fuel standard credit price is higher than in Washington and California. Yeah, I think that's a really good summary. Same basic rules, same basic quantification. The high prices there, that's... Um, where the bulk of our work has been because it's the most, you know, our work focuses on this um, dairy, biogas, electricity to EV. Um, and, and so we have this flexibility to move them among the different programs. And 
because Oregon's the most valuable. That's that's where our work is focused right now. Um, what, maybe one other important distinction that we've seen in Oregon is um, it's been much faster. Um, you know, it's it's a, a very long process to get a pathway registered in California, and we've seen Oregon be a bit more flexible and operate more quickly to date. And so that is also important and, and useful for for projects. Yeah. Okay. Excellent. Last, I want to cover the Federal Renewable Fuel Standard Program. Can you touch on how that program is being coupled with these state uh, clean fuel standard programs? Yeah, for sure. So it sounds like we're going to talk about crediting under clean fuel standards in more detail in a second. But um, it's very different in, in this federal program. It's not based on how much methane you avoid. Um, it, the federal renewable fuel standard gives you a credit for each um, the volume of fuel you produce, basically. And so uh, MMBTU of landfill renewable natural gas makes the same RIN credit that an MMBTU of dairy renewable natural gas makes. And so it's based on the volume of gas that you put into the pipeline uh, instead of a score around what your avoided methane benefit is. My follow-up to that is, you know, there are clearly a lot of different programs out there to potentially participate in. If you're a project developer, what are some factors you're considering before you decide which program to participate your project in? Yeah, um, so right now, it's very clearly the most valuable in terms of revenue. Um, to for projects to generate renewable natural gas that's then matched with compressed natural gas fueling to make clean fuel standard credits and also rim credits. Um, there's the primary reason for that is um, that you're only allowed to generate renewable identification numbers, RINs from the renewable fuel standard um, from renewable natural gas. And so electricity projects being matched to EVs aren't currently eligible to make RIN credits. And the RINs are currently very valuable, uh, roughly equal to the value of the clean fuel standard credits today um, for many dairy digesters. And so you're sort of doubling the value of environmental markets by, by going to renewable natural gas today. That dynamic can change, prices can change, all those things, but it adds a lot of value. Um, and so because of that, um, there's a big focus on building renewable natural gas projects. Um, and, but, you know, renewable natural gas projects are complicated. There's all the gas cleaning and injection, um, and all of the capital costs associated with doing that. And so that tends to be the dynamic. It's, it's very clearly the most valuable, um, but, um, it's more expensive to get there and it's a bit riskier to, to manage and operate. And so we see smaller projects that don't have the same economies of scale, projects that are far from pipelines, um, all of those uh, instead generate electricity. Um, and um, and so that's the that, that's kind of the trade-off that's made there. Um, we've seen almost all projects that can generate clean fuel standard credits instead of offset credits over the last five years. Um, that's because prices in clean fuel standards are are much higher. Um, and right now, uh, credit in California's offset market uh, that doesn't have a direct environmental benefit to California is 
like $20 a ton, where a clean fuel standard credit in Oregon is $165 a ton. So it's a very big difference and, and a lot more valuable there. Um, and, and so we projects that can are almost all going to clean fuel standards. Um, the main reason you couldn't is maybe you're making electricity outside of the Western grid um, and that you can't, there isn't a clean fuel standard that you can match your electricity with uh, there. And so that's where we've seen projects focus on the offset market. But we would anticipate new digesters in Washington to go to clean fuel standards um, over cabin trade systems um, because of the value there. Um, I don't think that means cabin trade systems are irrelevant. And, um, you know, like, like we were saying at the beginning, or not quite the beginning, <laughs> in the middle here, um, it's an important source of optionality, you know, knowing that there are multiple ways of selling or avoided methane emissions, I, I think is really important to financing these projects. Cap and trade systems often also have like a soft floor price that clean fuel standard projects don't have. And, um, and that really helps in project financing too, having a sense that there's a way of calculating how bad pricing could get as you think about how to finance a project. And so, um, but for right now, we see this focus on clean fuel standards and we see a focus on um, renewable natural gas. We think that's going to change. Um, you know, EPA had a very detailed proposal this year for how you make RINs from electricity. Um, and unfortunately, it wasn't incorporated in the final rule. So electricity is still disadvantaged under the renewable fuel standard. Um, we're still hopeful that will change. Um, what we've heard though is um, it's not likely to happen next year. So it's likely to be a ways off. Okay, well, that is some really insightful information there. Next, I want to go into the carbon intensity or CI scoring system adopted by the state clean fuel standard programs. As I understand, California Air Resources Board developed this scoring system for dairy digester and other renewable fuel generation projects, where generally dairy projects fall between a negative 300 and negative 100 carbon intensity score. And so that negative scoring system really enabled enables these projects to generate more credits. So if you can explain how that works, that would be great. Yeah, sure. Um, so all the clean fuel standards set a carbon intensity target for each year, and it goes down over time. That's how you're lowering the carbon intensity of fuels over time. If you sell a fuel that's used in a state with a clean fuel standard that's above that target, you have to buy credits to get you down to that target. And so that means any fuel that's sold in that has a carbon intensity below that target uh, generates the credits that are sold to that entity. And um, renewable or biogas projects um, are the only projects that go negative, and that's because they're credited for avoiding methane emissions. And so, you know, normal carbon intensities, say uh, for a landfill, landfill renewable natural gas are in the 30 to 40 grams of CO2 per megajoule, where, like you said, for um, for RNG dairy projects, we see negative 150, negative 200, negative 300. Um, and so you're making a lot more credits um, as a fuel because of that avoided methane emission. And the avoided methane emission is really the key uh, for 
why these fuels are so valuable in clean fuel standards. The point I would want to make here and that I think is important to producers is um, the CI score for um, a dairy project is not a fixed thing. Uh, you know, we mentioned this negative 150 to negative 300. That's like a doubling of the value of your credits there. And what really determines it is um, a bunch of assumptions around both how manure was managed before the digester and how it's managed after the digester. And so this is the thing that our operations team really specializes in is how do you get a score that is defensible and verifiable, but then at the same time, maximize that potential value. And so there are just lots of complicated assumptions in there. Um, how, how did you clean your lagoon before you had a digester? Did you drain it completely? Did you drain it completely and um, take out all of the sludge that was at the bottom? All those things have like million dollar per year implications in the value of these credits. And so the, it's just very, very sensitive to assumptions about both how manure was managed before the digester and how it was managed after. And so, um, you know, really being careful, I guess, is the key message uh, with how you go about um, establishing these pathways because they can swing value in really big ways. And we were just, we were running some numbers um, where you know, if you use easy default assumptions, you can swing a CI score, you can reduce it by 70 or 50 or uh, 40 points. And that ends up meaning a reduction in half a million to a million dollars of revenue each year to a project. And so it's just something to be very, very careful with. Um, and it, it, it's not just about maximizing revenue at all times either. You're, you have to get these scores verified. And so having the wrong score and then getting it verified wrong is a liability to the project. And so there's, um, there's maximizing it and being aggressive, but there's also knowing what's defensible and what's verifiable. All those things really matter, um, to the value of these projects. And, you know, it really becomes this, uh, the methane avoidance calculation is really the key revenue that's driving these projects. And so it deserves careful attention. Okay. So is the only thing that's kind of certain with the CI score, the expected target that the state is going to set it over time, for instance, by 2025, the CI target will be a negative 10. Is that the only thing that's kind of set in stone with this program? Yeah. So that's, yes, these, each of the systems have targets. I wouldn't quite say set in stone. We've seen like in California, um, there've been a lot of renewable fuels that have come online, renewable diesel, electricity. Um, and there's been a lot of supply of renewable fuel and prices. We saw a big reduction in prices, 60, $70 a ton. California has big ambitious climate goals and where the target was set then was not going to meet those goals. And so the air resource board has been deepening those targets. And so even that carbon intensity target, is something that can potentially move through regulation or legislation. And so um, many of the variables are are um, subject to change, which is what's difficult about these markets too. And so, yeah. Okay. And so as a follow-up question to how all these different programs work together and sort of a burning question I have is, I consistently hear that you cannot stack state carbon offset credits with state clean fuel standard credits. However, you can stack 
the state clean fuel credit with the federal renewable fuel standard credit or RIN credit. So projects can earn the state clean fuel credit and the federal renewable fuel standard or RIN credit at the same time. Can you explain why projects are able to do that? Yeah, I'm probably not in the best position to explain it um, in a super defensible way. It's it's very clearly written by both EPA and the regulators of these um, clean fuel standards that you can stack them. And so that's probably the most important thing. You can do it. Um, I think the defense is that EPA really, they're not looking to take any ownership of the methane reduction through the RIN credit. And so it's separate from... Um, that methane that can be credited in clean fuel standards, where in offset is very distinctly, it's the same protocol, the same use. Um, and so they're saying that would sort of be double counting that same methane benefit. But I, that's probably a bit of a rabbit hole and not worth um, trying to understand all of the logic. The, the important thing here is just knowing which incentives can and can't be stacked. And we've seen you can stack RINs and clean fuel standard credits. Um, yeah. The one... You know, you can't make RINs from electricity currently, that, um, and so electric projects are, are um, disadvantaged in that way. But um, that will hopefully change. Okay. And so my next question, you know, I'm wanting to better understand how the pricing volatility seen, especially in California's low-carbon fuel standard credit price, it being around $200 and then dropping down to $70 or below over time and how that might impact projects. Well, um, you know, this is the difficulty. Um, the, there's a lot of volatility in these markets, um, both in um, what supply will be, what kind of fuels are going to come online, and what demand will be, how well... Um, what are the targets the regulators are going to set over the long term and how could that potentially change over time? And so that means a lot of uncertainty for pricing. Um, on the offset side, um, in, in cap and trade systems, there is, there's a, it's like a floor price. It's not a full floor. It's a, um, it's the minimum price at which the state will sell allowances into a system that sort of sets what's seen as a minimum price there. And that I've seen that be very, very useful in, um, financing decisions, you know, okay, well, it can't really get worse than this. And um, so forecasting prices in that way. Um, and there's not an equivalent of that in clean fuel standards. The state isn't selling these credits. It's bilateral transactions between folks that are selling fuels above the target and folks that are selling fuels below the target. Um, and so um, there isn't a floor price there. Um, what I would say is, um, you know, prices were so high, the credits were so valuable that it incentivized private capital to take the risk um, and, to, and to build projects knowing that there was some risk around pricing. And even when we've seen a big reduction in um, in clean fuel standard prices in California, we haven't seen projects stop. You know, it wasn't like the projects no longer operate or don't work at, at these prices. Um, and so, but I do think that we, this is, there is risk in these markets and there needs to be strong potential return in order to motivate private capital to come in and build a lot of new projects. And so, um, so I think, yes, having a big reduction, really experiencing the volatility that's going to hurt project development, uh, no doubt about it. My hope is that, and this is what we were talking about earlier, this sort of building of a much larger ecosystem than just California's low carbon fuel standard, adding in Oregon's 
Clean Fuels Program Washington, adding in voluntary market opportunities, seeing increasing pricing and cap and trade systems, that all of that can create a resilience in the sense that avoided methane is important. There are clear state, there are lots of programs around it, and um, and it's going to be incentivized one way or the other. I think that sort of optionality reduces the risk and therefore means private capital can flow even without the same clear high return. So, um, yeah. Okay. That's really useful information there. So I'm going to kind of shift gears here a little bit. We've talked a lot so far about clean fuel standard programs, digesters upgrading biogas to renewable natural gas to participate in clean fuel programs at the state and federal level. What about offset projects just participating in cap and trade programs in California and Washington? When might a project be more well-suited as an offset project instead of upgrading to RNG and doing a clean fuel crediting program? Do you see many of these projects? Kind of what's out there? It's it's definitely not the focus. Um, we have seen some. Um, one example is a project in California. Um, California has a feed-in tariff program called Biomat, where um, utilities pay high pricing for electricity, um, but you have to uh, turn in. You know, the the utility takes ownership of the renewable electricity certificate, the REC different environmental market um, and because of that you're not eligible to make clean fuel standard credits from those projects um, but that's a long-term contract with a creditworthy utility that's really valuable for financing projects and so we've seen some more risk-averse developers like that and and like the certainty there those projects are still eligible to also generate offsets um, and we've seen big increases in California offset prices you know the offsets here matter more than they did in the past. Um, and that's one example. We're also working with some developers that are exploring um, simpler systems that don't make energy. They're flaring, they're capturing and flaring biogas. Um, those wouldn't be eligible to make clean fuel standard credits. There's no energy to say you put in a vehicle, um, but um, they would make um, offset credits. And so, and I think that's, important you know avoiding looking at all the different ways of avoiding methane here is is um is is really important methane is such a potent we, we haven't talked about it but it's worth talking about for a moment it's you know methane it's very short-lived in the atmosphere but it has a really severe impact on warming while while it's there and so i think the most compelling statistic is about a third of the warming we've experienced so far has come not from fossil fuel combustion, not from cutting forests down, but from putting methane into the atmosphere. And it's such a solvable problem. You know, it's a product that has value. Um, and so capturing that methane and destroying it, if we need all the options on the table. And so I do think as, as more systems come out and there's more of an incentive to avoid methane emissions, we might see some other projects that are capturing and destroying methane and, and not um, looking at clean fuel standards there. And so it's, it hasn't been a big source of development, but I would say something that I'm interested in and, and might have some potential as environmental markets grow, prices grow, political will to do more about climate change grows, all, all, all those things. Great. Thank you for making that distinction there. So we have covered biogas to RNG projects that receive credits under state and federal clean fuel programs 
we have covered offset projects under cap and trade programs at the state level. We have not talked a lot about biogas to electricity projects yet. Can you explain the programs behind that crediting pathway and kind of what's out there right now? Yeah, so all the clean fuel standards, Washington, Oregon, California, have this pathway, biogas, electricity to electric vehicles. They all have slightly different rules around nuanced things like what vintage, when what electric, when did the electricity need to go on to the grid in order to match it with um, when it was consumed in a vehicle, deliverability, um, where how do you show that the electricity showed up in that vehicle, um, things like that, or certificate some certifications that are required. But all of those, I'd say, are, are manageable for projects. And we're working with projects anywhere in the West to sell, to generate clean fuels standard credits so far in California and Oregon. And, you know, the Washington market's just getting started and we will work in Washington too. Um, and so um, it's a viable opportunity um, there for, across all the clean fuel standards. So we've mentioned ERINs earlier. Can you go into more detail about how that crediting system can potentially change the landscape a bit for these biogas to electricity projects for dairy digesters? Yeah, just, you know, like we were talking about renewable natural gas earlier, the RINs are currently a big part of the incentives for these projects. And, um, and so, you know, this changes. It's not always this drastic. We're at a particular moment where California clean fuel standard prices are, are as low as they've been, um, and RIN prices are very strong, but the RINs can be as much as doubling the value of the overall environmental credits here. And so, um, so we could see a lot more, you know, roughly or close to a doubling of, um, electricity revenue with, um, E-RINs. And the, you know, E-RINs have been in the, E-RINs are a frustrating story to talk about for sure. They've been in the renewable fuel standard for a long time. I'm going to get the number wrong, but it's, you know, seven or eight or nine years. There's, there's written that there should be a pathway in that way. There've been multiple lawsuits, um, demanding that pathways be approved and EPA published, um, detailed guidance outlining exactly how that would work, um, at the beginning of this year, um, Felt like it was on track to get approved from the EPA, um, and then they got pushback from different industries um, that the way their rules worked violated how the renewable fuel standard is supposed to work, and they've paused it more or less. Um, and so we're sort of back to this to where we were before we had this guidance, where it's clearly written into the standard, it's required, it's got to come at some point, but but we don't have rules to operate operationalize it and actually generate revenue from it. Okay. Well, thank you for explaining that there. My last question is, you know, anaerobic digesters are expensive to install and to operate and are generally not profitable unless your operation is of large enough scale, usually in the thousands of cows range. So are there still some important factors you feel could be addressed that might lower the risk for producers wanting to get involved in these carbon programs? Yeah, so a couple of hopes um, for that, I think. One is that as the ecosystem of developers that come in and build projects and operate projects builds out, um, 
there'll be more openness, willingness, interest in working on smaller dairies. Um, and there's no doubt bigger projects are the lower hanging fruit and have the highest returns. Um, but hopefully as we get more experience in these markets, they multiply prices potentially increase all those things. I think, I do think we could see, um, Developers also focusing on a next tier, a smaller tier of dairies. Electricity might be a really helpful part of that too. Not having the same capital cost with cleaning gas um, could mean profitable projects at, at a smaller scale. And so um, I'm optimistic that anaerobic digestion can and will be profitable. It's sort of small for smaller farms too. I do think the build, there's no reason anaerobic digestion be the only thing that we focus on here, you know, um, and um, I do think that there's a lot of potential in alternative manure management approaches, like we talked about vermifiltration or advanced separation or things like that, um, and other practices on dairy farms. Um, like I said, we're focused on enteric emissions, ways of reducing enteric emissions and fertilizer management. I think all of those are important too and don't necessarily have the same need to scale you're not making energy in the same way you don't need to interconnect in the same way all those things there there could be opportunities for smaller farms there too so i think even small farms that might always have difficulty uh with an energy project on theirs um are still likely to um see opportunity from increasing awareness and desire to take action on methane and climate change in general and so i do think the next sort of wave or trend um for projects like this and dairies is going to be pressure from downstream buyers of milk um, to reduce the emissions associated with that milk. And that could really broaden um, the types of projects that we see, um, how they're implemented, all those things. And so, um, so yeah, I think there's still a lot of potential and opportunity with smaller dairies that, that's coming. Okay, perfect. Well, before I let you go, Peter, is there anything else you feel is worth mentioning that we haven't touched on today? I think that's it. Well, thank you so much for joining us today, Peter. I look forward to speaking with you again, and I really learned a lot. Thanks. Join us next time on the Carbon and Cows podcast, where I speak with Dr. Frank Mitloner, professor and air quality specialist in the Department of Animal Sciences at UC Davis and director of UC Davis's Clear Center, where he gives insight into how California's mandate for dairy and livestock industry to reduce their methane emissions has prompted the installation of nearly 200 anaerobic digesters in their state since 2016. See you then. Thank you for listening to the Carbon and Cows podcast. You can subscribe to the show through iTunes or your favorite podcasting platform so you never miss an episode. For articles or links to resources mentioned in the podcast, as well as our contact information, please see the show notes. Listener feedback is important to the success of our mission to support dairy and livestock industry. So please rate and review the podcast or reach out to us through email if you have any questions or if there are topics you would like for us to address in future episodes. The Carbon and Cows podcast is produced by the Center for Sustaining Agriculture and Natural Resources at Washington State University. 
Editorial oversight and technical content expertise is provided by Georgine Yorgi, Marcos Marcondes, and Shannon Nybergs from Washington State University, and Hernan Tejeda from the University of Idaho. Aaron Whitmore provided production assistance. Other podcasts in the series are available at the Center for Sustaining Agriculture and Natural Resources website, csanr.wsu.edu.